Welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. The following review will contain spoilers and may contain strong language. My mommy always said there were no monsters, no real ones, but there are. Yes, there are. Today, as part of our review of the entire Alien franchise, we'll be discussing Aliens, starring Sigourney Weaver. You know, Burke, I don't know which species is worse. You don't see them fucking each other over for a goddamn percentage. Michael Bean. I'd like to keep this handy for close encounters. Bill Paxton. Five. We're on express elevator to hell. Going down. Two. Jeanette Goldstein. Look, man, I only need to know one thing. Where they are. Paul Reiser. I work for the company, but don't let that fool you. I'm really an okay guy. And Lance Hemrickson. I prefer the term artificial person myself. Directed by James Cameron. Get away from her, you bitch! Hello and welcome to the Rewire Movie Podcast. Hey, Devlin, you ever been mistaken for a man? It's Galley in Glasgow. Oh, we're in some pretty shit now. It's Devlin in London. Uh, what the hell are we supposed to use, man? Harsh language? It's Patrick in London. Move it, Spunk Meyer. We're rolling. It's Matt in South Korea. Thank <laughs> <laughs> God somebody said Spunk Meyer. Oh, is it not the best name ever instead of a Spunk Meyer? I was very, very cautious, Matt, with my opening line there because I didn't want to steal one of yours because I know you, you like quite a lot of the quotes I have <laughs> seven in front of me so I was prepared <laughs> sandwiches out the box um, yeah we're going to be discussing aliens we're going to run the whole series but we're going to do them listeners uh, because we've all agreed that we saw them in a particular order and just so happens that we all have the same experience we're going to do them as we saw them which is this one first and then the first one next and then we'll run the gambit of the entire series but it'll probably take us about 12 months That's, maybe i saw them in order oh well patrick what you want about you've, we, you've ruined you everything doing? man <laughs> <laughs> you've broken the illusion <laughs> i thought that when i put you on a leave of absence in the last episode that you would have learned your lesson evidently not right okay so no i'm just i'm just happy to be back at the sausage factory gonna uh, <laughs> well, yeah, the, the, the factory's back open and we're pushing out, churning out sausages. <laughs> you've put, you've put the glass ceiling, the glass sausage shaped ceiling back on this horrible extended metaphor. <laughs> we are, we are back. We're back with the, uh, with the usual gang. And, uh, um, Matt, it was your choice of a throwback. And my God, did I want to pick this? Um, however, I think I might have been a little bit afraid to discuss such a uh, such an important film to me and to many others, and I imagine many of the listeners. So, Matt, you chose Aliens, 1986, James Cameron's Tour de Force. Why did you pick Aliens? Well, like Ripley dropping those fiery flare markers at the end, the films that we see in our youth kind of drop these markers that influence our tastes, and this is one of them for me. It really got under my skin at an early age, and it stayed there. Uh I had to pick it because to me it defines an element of cinema that I love the most. And it was one of several films that I rotated through uh, countless times on VHS. And it feels very befitting of a rewind podcast as I just about wore out my aliens tape. 
And it's become a bit of a joke at the moment in our apartment for the last, I don't know how long I've been watching and rewatching Aliens or Alien or Alien 3 or that massive Prometheus documentary, uh, The Furious Gods or Memory, The Making of Alien and all, all these xenomorph related things in a really geeky way. And my girlfriend is like, aliens again really so the process of ex explaining exactly what the draw is um time and time again for this film kind of informed my my choice and the thinking behind it i think there's a lot to explore still even though there's a lot of podcasts out there dealing with this film i, I think this is a safe zone for me to discuss my addiction as i think i have some like-minded chaps here Ah, yeah, I agree. So this will hopefully be a cathartic experience, and maybe um, I don't know. We could. This is like counselling, so yeah. we'll be able to, you know, bring on your relationship again, so we don't need to discuss aliens. Well, when did you? When did you first see it? Then I assume that it was just what rental or. Well, it, this was a hard one to. Uh, this was a hard one to figure out. Uh, my timelines are a bit muddled here. I did my best to research when and how I first saw it, but I think there may be some inaccuracies. Uh, the Alien and Aliens video boxes would kind of loom over me at our local video shop, Kavanagh's, that I've already mentioned on, a, on an earlier pod. Um, now it's a boring co-op. It used to be a great video rental place. And that, that kind of greenish, somewhat abstract egg of the first film, which I always thought was hovering over the earth, uh, turns out it was kind of a woven grid, like a metal grid of the hull or something like that. But uh, I always thought it was an, an alien on Earth story, not in space. Uh, and it would kind of be teased later in the Alien 3 teaser where they were going to bring it to Earth. But it turns out it was all it all happened in space. So that that kind of abstract box got my attention. Um, and the, and the, the, the famous tagline in space, no one can hear you scream that got me interested. And then of course, next to it was the blue one, which was aliens. Uh, and it was always on the top row out of reach, um, with another ambiguous kind of clawed creature on it with drool dripping. And I could only dream of what was on the tapes. I had quite a, a good imagination, I think, but I couldn't really for the life of me figure out what could be on them. And they looked really scary and dangerous and that blood red 18 certificate meant that they were out of bounds and I couldn't, <laughs> I could never see it. So I think ITV came to my rescue or one of the other four terrestrial channels we had at the time. I think it was ITV. And, uh, I vaguely remember an aliens continues after the news, uh, as they used to do. So I, I think it was probably ITV. Um, I tried finding the original airing dates, but I failed miserably. Uh, I, I was a really bad sleeper and I didn't have, um, uh, a television in my room uh, for for a while. And then I, I had my uh, grandparents' old TV. They got a new one for their living room and I got their old vintage TV, like really old one. So uh, I would watch that in uh, late night uh, ITV and Channel 4 and catch some of these films on there. But um, yeah, pretty much every Sunday growing up, I'd, I'd watch the Aliens tape uh, while my dad was at church and my mum was cooking Sunday lunch. And I knew I wouldn't be interrupted or embarrassed uh, or with, by, by the swearing or something, you know, that was going on. Uh, I do the same with Terminator and Predator and all of these, these things. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I'm just fascinated with the concept, really. I, 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 um, uh, I probably saw it about 10 years old, nine or 10. Uh, I know when Alien 3 came out, I was ready for that one and I saw that immediately. But, um, yeah, I, I have a, I have a lot of first encounters with this one. So I'll pass this one over to, uh, to Gally. When did you first see Aliens? 
Oh, we're like brothers from another mother. I, I am the same. Undoubtedly, this is the film that I've watched uh, the most in my lifetime. Uh, I'd actually probably be afraid to put a number on it. Um, it had a, a seriously profound effect on me. Watched it with my dad on television when I was about 10 years old. Um, the, the Greek of it all, he probably just didn't realize or care that it was probably out of reach <laughs> for me at that point. Um, but once I saw it, um, I became absolutely consumed by it all. So I remember going and pestering him to go to, um, I think it was like a rent, a video rent store. It wasn't Blockbuster, but it, I can't remember the name of it. But we used to go all the time and I would rent the same tapes all the time. But obviously he would pay for it. And then I saw the special edition with the cast photo on the back that was like extra 17 minutes. I was like, OMG, got to get that. Um, so I used to rent that and then eventually they bought it for me again, all too young. I sought out military apparel. Hmm. I remember going to a cheap Stoke-on-Trent market to find some, uh, camo trousers that looks <laughs> vaguely familiar, uh, to the ones that are used in, uh, as the Marines wear. And, uh, even now to well, that, that to was day, just last week. <laughs> yeah, that was it. Yeah. And, uh, and to this day, I, I recite, um, I recite lines from the film, uh, awkwardly in meetings. I'll say stuff like, uh, you know, stay frosty. Or, uh, if someone's, <laughs> if someone's, um, someone's maybe made a mistake, I'll, I'll drop the look into my eye. Um, so yeah, you guys might have to hold me back and, uh, put me in bay 12, please, <laughs> if I gush too much about this movie. Uh, what about you, Devlin? Uh, I know we've got a bit of a shared experience with this one. We do, yeah. I, I watched it on, on TV as well as a kid. Um, I I don't think I, I watched it as a kid as as much as uh, the the two of you, based on what you said. It was a film that I remember watching and, and liking and people would talk about, but um, it wasn't a, a mega repeated watch. I just remember it being... It was it was an ITV thing. Um, yeah, with the, the news break either side. You know why they do that? No, the, the putting the news on in the middle of films and TV. It's uh, it's just so they can sneak more adverts in at you. Ah. There you go, little insight from inside the industry. <laughs> if you break a film into segments, the segments are shorter, and you can fit more commercial breaks per hour right. in shorter segments than you can in a long one. Yeah. It's very prosaic and boring reason. <laughs> they want, I just thought it had when to air at 10 p.m. If it didn't air at 10 p.m., the world would end or something. That's why they did it. But <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, yeah. Um, so I, I remember it being on ITV a lot. I remember, um, I remember there being times when maybe this was, this would have been, yeah, when I was a kid. Um, I remember being on like kind of early, mm. maybe, you know, certainly early enough that, that, uh, everyone was sitting down to watch it. So it's possible that they sort of, it was a film that they kind of crept back in the, I think, uh, um, it's, it's kind of reputation as being, you know, like one of those hard 18, this is terrifying. You shouldn't watch this. I think it's, uh, that kind of eroded a little, mm. uh, and, and it was pulled back into more a kind of, uh, a fairly acceptable film, which is, which is unusual. Um, and then, yeah, I, I didn't really watch a, uh, watch it a lot in the intervening years until, uh, I lived with, uh, Galley in Leeds. And we had this fucking terrible um, TV VCR VHS combo in the upstairs kitchen, and there was a stack of what about fifteen tapes that we used to we used to go to Leeds Covered Market and buy videos for fifty p each. And did we buy the box set at the market, or did you bring it with you, gals? I I brought it with. Okay, me. that makes sense. So it was it was the uh, the the brilliant quadrilogy video box set, mm-hmm. and uh, Aliens would just be in. 
the 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 tape player all the time. <laughs> and so when you'd go in and cook, and this was around the time we started getting well into MasterChef as well, so we were a pair of proper pricks <laughs> just sitting <laughs> just with the crap food that we'd bought from Morrison's that cost about 60, 60p. But it was like, oh, make sure you put a bit of paprika in it. And it's just eggs. Um, but we would just start aliens from wherever it happened to be yeah. in the tape. You would just press play and you'd watch the film from wherever you got to last time. And then you'd watch it until you were done. And then you'd press stop and then you'd leave. And then the next day you'd just pick it up again. So I was on a rotation for at least a year. Uh, so that was where I got most of my familiarity with aliens, mm. uh, which is kind of strange because it means that... Um, I'd not really sat down and watched it on purpose as an actual film for a really, really long time before this week. So um, it was a, it was a, a kind of fun experience to actually properly sit down and, uh, and, and, and focus and, and understand that it was a film and not just a thing that happened while you were making <laughs> terrible rice dishes. <laughs> um, but yeah, how about you, Patrick? Cause, uh, uh, we all, it seems went through aliens first, but you took a different route. Yeah. Thanks for checking the fact with me first, Gunny. Well done. Um, um, not really. <laughs> uh, I, uh, f- funny enough, just very quickly, I had a black and white TV growing up mm-hmm. when, cause it was like a hand me down thing. And that's the first time I ever watched Alien was in black and white. Uh, ah. gotta remember the TV had a little like pen cap on the, on the switch button because the button had fell off. So I'd use the pen <laughs> cap to twist it and change channels and stuff. Um, just, yeah, that's, so that side, very similarly, uh, kind of backstory to this. I think from my Terminator, uh, our Terminator episode, where I discussed how much my, my father, uh, loves this film. Like this is his, I mean, he, Cameron's probably his top two favorite of the films in Terminator, or well, top three, Terminator 2 and Aliens. And dad, when he was, when I was a kid, was always quoting this. Quoting this, he was giving all, all the opponent lines and giving me all of that. And when I was in trouble of looking to my eye, you know, he, and I was like, dad, I haven't seen it. You won't let me watch it because it's an 18. And I was quite protected back then. They, they, they were very particular with what films I could watch, even when I was like a young teenager. And so I didn't see, but I saw Alien because I'm, I think that was a, a snook, uh, I sneaked watching that when it was on TV because mum and dad talked about these films quite a lot and, and how much he likes aliens. So I watched Alien first. Um, and then Aliens, I think, was kind of an event film for me because of that, because finally I was allowed to watch it or, mm. uh, it became available and I made sure I watched it. And, um, I, I remember, I even, I remember even back then just kind of comparing the two and being quite wowed with what an action film could be, uh, uh, cause I was expecting it to be similar to the first one. And then I, I think, I think even think that this film was kind of something that made me understand how you can play around with dialogue and how fun dialogue can be at the time. Cause I remember then sharing that common interest with my dad and throwing the quotes around and loving them. Cause he just, he just shout them for no reason and laugh at them and like gleefully because he loved the dialogue and that became kind of a thing. Um, I don't think I've watched it as many times as you guys have though. I think I'm more in Devlin's vein here because. I, yeah, I don't, I don't think I've seen it uh, that many times. And 
it wasn't till recently. I think I texted you all when I, I hadn't seen the special edition till the other day. Uh, so that was new to me. I have no reason, no idea why. I've got the quadrilogy, uh, quadrilogy box set as well. I don't know why I haven't seen that because again, my dad loves that version because he loves all the extra, uh, Hudson dialogue. That's his favorite mm. aspect of mm. the extended edition. <laughs> um, that's kind of my, uh, memory of it, to be honest. Uh, along with the disclaimer that I mentioned earlier, uh, I think we should be absolutely crystal clear so we're going to be discussing pretty much the special edition version but we will do um a bit like we've done with numerous podcasts now where we've had um special editions versus theatrical we'll probably highlight certain scenes um that may that we we either agree or disagree help the film hinder the film whatever um but i think before we get into it and before we get into the production and all that other good stuff matt can we have one of your infamous plot summaries, please? Okay, I'll be as quick as possible. Here we go. I hope you're going to sing it. <laughs> <laughs> I am dancing during this. Okay, here we go. During an extended hypersleep of 57 years, Lieutenant Ellen Ripley, last survivor of the Nostromo, is discovered floating in space by a deep salvage vessel. She's shocked to discover her daughter died during her unusually long stasis, is chastised by the company regarding her pricey Nostromo-destroying incident, has her tales of an alien encounter dismissed entirely, and is relegated to menial tasks, shifting crates about with a power loader, spending her evening smoking and hanging out with Jonesy the Cat. Amid unrelenting sweat-soaked xenomorph-laden nightmares, Ripley reluctantly accepts recruitment as alien advisor on an Asheron rescue mission after the company loses contact with the colony on LV-426. The original remote planet Ripley's spaceship intercepted a distress signal from, and which ultimately led to the decimation of her entire crew. When lean, mean, absolute badasses, the gung-ho colonial marines, Hicks, Hudson, Vasquez, and the rest, with the renegade Ripley in tow, land, they find it eerily deserted except for a little girl named Newt. No one calls her Rebecca except her brother. Ripley vows to protect and never desert her. After a readout suggests the entire populace of the colony has gathered in one location, the cocky troops move in, only to find colonists pinned to walls, one of whom begs to be killed before a familiar creature bursts from her chest. The ensuing firefight results in a mighty death toll and the marines, having had their asses well and truly kicked, must retreat. They prepare for immediate dust-off, planning to nuke the site from orbit and destroy the alien threat, but a stowaway alien warrior attacks, causing their dropship to crash and burn stranding the team hopelessly on the unstable moon, with its emergency venting counting down like a ticking time bomb. Bishop, the party's android or artificial person, tunnels his way out and remote pilots a second dropship to rescue them. But not before the aliens attack again, claiming everyone but Ripley and an acid-burned, incapacitated Hicks. Newt is taken away to be cocooned. Alone, Ripley heads back into the belly of the beast to fulfill her surrogate maternal promise and rescue Newt before it's too late. They encounter the monstrous alien queen, torch her latest batch of eggs, and are pursued by her aboard their fleeing dropship. After the queen viciously tears Bishop in two, Ripley battles her inside a robotic power loader in a final vengeful confrontation of mother versus mother. Ripley defeats the queen by blowing her out of the goddamned airlock, as per usual, into the cold darkness of space, and it's back to the old Freezerinos to dream peacefully with Newt safely by her side. I want to watch it again. It's so <laughs> <Me> good. <too. laughs> oh, well, I, you know what? I'm going to clarify now as well. Um, the film 
it's got a bit of a reputation now for I don't know maybe I'm maybe I'm trying to protect protect its credibility that it's kind of gone a bit bro mm-hmm. like uh, I don't know but help me out if I'm if I'm sort of throwing, bit, uh, throwing, throwing, <laughs> no, I know what you mean. It, it seems to have it's... been, it seems to have been seconded <laughs> by uh, a certain subset of kind of like just bro fanboys. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I don't, I don't want to say that um, uh, sort of disrespectfully because I am a fanboy of this, but it's kind of gone a, a touch toxic, I would suggest, yeah. um, like fandom can do. And, I'd um, agree. I was very nervous when choosing uh, it because I thought, you know, somebody's going to uh, pick apart what I'm what I'm saying, and I I just thought, you know, to hell with it because I I love it so much. I may not have, I may not be clued up on the extended universe. I may not have read all the comic books, but um, discussing the film itself, I feel quite confident doing that. So I'm not going to be put off by, you know, the the toxic fanboy movement uh, that's connected to this exactly i guess what i'm trying to say is that um this isn't just going to be a galley loving um i've got things that uh, i think are valid criticisms of the film um but there is a lot to love um and and certainly the special edition i guess patrick being the person has just recently seen it how did you find the the additions were there any that that particularly you thought wrangled with you based on your knowledge of the theatrical. Just to go straight into the character of Ripley, who is one of my all-time favourite cinematic heroes, but I was really pleased to see an extra arc to her character with the just a very simple bit of storytelling that her daughter, you know, she's kind of outlived her daughter now, having been in cryo sleep for 57 years, who's, who's passed away. And I think that really trajects her on this journey of aliens because, uh, Matt, you mentioned it in your synopsis there about the maternal instincts because she's lost her daughter and then she finds Newt. And just knowing that little bit of fact, the special edition that she lost her daughter and she's upset about that, uh, it, it, to, to compare to a film that we watched recently, Demolition Man, where Stallone... <laughs> 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 He's just got to get the hunk of chunker. <laughs> yeah, I think this really added a, a a very good dimension, extra dimension for me watching the special edition for Ripley's character. Mm. Um, like my dad, I uh, enjoyed its Hudson's extra dialogue, and the, the the more dialogue we get there is is very enjoyable. Um, yeah, I I I really enjoyed the Sentry Guns uh, set piece as well. I thought the tension. Was done really well there. Uh, did we get the what, is it Dwayne and Ellen name reveal between? Yeah, why was it Dwayne? Why did they go with Dwayne? <laughs> I mean, Dwayne, yeah, fine, but it's still a, it's still a lovely moment that Dwayne I Dibley. I enjoy it. <laughs> Matt, it's uh, it's better than Brian Mills. It is better I mean, than Brian. Sorry, it's Brian. Brian. <laughs> Sorry, Dwayne. <laughs> uh, I will find you, Patrick. Can I can I go back to that um, that extra i guess it just gives it more punch doesn't it the maternal instincts of, mm. of ripley it, it also does. it really trajects the film on ripley's journey yeah. here yeah and it also um for those people that i guess sequels right the difficulty is how do we get the gang back together how do we get ripley and aliens in the same space and for this one she has to make a conscious decision i think that scene with um where she she finds out that she's outlived her daughter uh, which is really wonderfully played. It's a nice little bit of sci-fi as well with the uh, projection yep. screen, uh, trying to give them a sense of, uh, you know, uh, trees and life despite yeah. being in the lifeless vacuum of space. Um, 
I think that just then gives you the, okay, there's, there's the motivation. Well, there's some motivation and it's then definitely informs her decision making going forward with Newt and it means that their relationship is just solidified. I think you don't, you necessarily don't need it in the theatrical, but I think it just adds to it if you watch the special edition. Do you have any news about my daughter? Well, we did come up with some information. Why don't we sit down? I was hoping to wait until after the inquest. Um, Amanda Ripley McLaren, married name, I guess, age 66. And that was at the time of her death, which was two years ago. I'm real sorry. She was cremated and interred at Westlake Repository, Little Shoot, Wisconsin. No children. I promised her that I'd be home for her birthday. Her 11th birthday. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree. I, I saw the theatrical first, and uh, when I finally did see the special edition, the Ripley's daughter scene actually felt quite underwhelming and odd. Uh, like in, in retrospect, that seems crazy because I love it so much now, but it felt jarring because I wasn't used to seeing it. And uh, I was just so used to the, the structure and layout of the theatrical. Uh, it just shows that nobody's perfect, and Cameron really missed the trick by cutting it out. It's, it's a relatively short scene, uh, and th- there's also an argument that I, I actually subscribe to that Sigourney Weaver could have even won the Oscar if the scene had remained in the film because it really, she said she'd never do another alien film if, if it wasn't uh, reinstated, I, I think, uh, something along those lines. She was very mad with the Fox executives for cutting it. So maybe it wasn't Jim. I don't really know the, the ins and outs of it, but it, it belongs in the movie. I, um, I hadn't seen the theatrical cut, um, I, I couldn't even tell you probably when I was a kid that it was on TV, but because I didn't watch it, um, that, that frequently, um, because the version that I've seen the most is a special edition. I literally had no idea that that wasn't just in the film. Mm. And it kind of seems mad to me having seen it recently that they would ever think of excising it. Yeah. It seems kind of yeah. so important mm. because yeah, it's, it's, it's the theme of the film, like the emotional core of the film. Mm hmm. Is uh, is is no. a mother without a daughter finding a surrogate daughter? Yeah, and it's, it all it all builds to the yeah. the mother versus mother confrontation, wronged mother versus wronged yeah. mother. Yeah, she, you know, indirectly the aliens have, have taken her daughter away from her, and uh, when she the scene where she burns the eggs at the end is kind of a it's a revenge tale, and then that face off, it, it's it's all uh, it, the intensity and the meaning is increased because of that that Ripley's daughter scene with with Burke yeah. in in that kind of fake fake park that we're talking about it's it's kind of shit that alien 3 just does away with all that oh patrick it. we will we will get to it. we will get to alien 3 on that one but you you're absolutely no, right. no, i just wanted yeah. to comment um, but, i i yeah. watched no, uh, i watched aliens with uh, with kiara with my partner and um uh she hadn't seen it i i think she she remembered bits and pieces of it she wasn't particularly familiar with the with the film uh in, in depth. So she was kind of, uh, locked in. It was, uh, it was great to see somebody just sort of, you know, 
get totally sucked into this this film, which is which has been around for so long. Seeing somebody kind of as if she was seeing it again for the first time, and straight away afterwards, she's like, well, "What happens to them?" How's that? You don't want to know. Yeah, you really don't. <laughs> Uh, there is a theory out there that you can, uh, which I kind of like, that Alien Three and Alien Resurrection are just bad dreams in the in the hypersleep. So I'm just <laughs> I'm just going to that one. I know they're canon technically, but I, I like to end it after Aliens. I don't really, I I, I don't want to believe it. Oh Matt, we will we will duel yeah. again on Alien Three because I'm I don't like that theory. Maybe I don't like Alien one, Three that so much either. Anyway. So. Uh, oh. No. Okay. Well, we'll <laughs> have that twice. <laughs> At a later date. Sandwiches. Yeah. Um, all right. So, Patrick, what I will say is, I do love me some Hudson. Um, Bill Paxton is just, uh, is just such a, an absolute legend. R.I.P. The man. Um, I, I, I will, I will say. That, I watched True Lies last night. Oh, it was on, well. it was on last night, wasn't it? Me and Daniel, we literally, when, yeah, we, when we turned it on, on, when we turned it on, it was the, I've got a baby dick. <laughs> <laughs> it's pathetic. <laughs> He's so good. Oh, it's so, so good. <laughs> like, like a ten-year-old boy. <laughs> so titties make you want to sit up and beg for butter milk. There's, there's not many people that can be like a fucking weasel as well as he can. Wow. <laughs> and um, and yet man. and yet be so likable oh, yeah, because yeah. Hudson. Well, I, I'll just say this before we get into Hudson because it might it might end up being a love-in. But the extra Hudson scene that I don't particularly like that I kind of wish that they would remove from the special edition is the sort of mini reveal or, or the alert of the alien queen. Each one of these things comes from an egg, right? So who's laying these eggs? I'm not sure. It must be something we haven't seen yet. Hey, maybe it's like an ant hive. Bees, man. Bees have hives. You know what I mean. There's like one female that runs the whole show. Yes, the queen. Yeah, the mama. She's badass, man. I mean, big. These things ain't ants. I know that. Yeah, the theatrical sets it up beautifully with Bishop's line. It must be something we haven't seen yet. And I always loved that, um, just the not knowing. Yes. And they just have a look, don't they, Uh, Hudson and Vasco, which is perfect. Because the line about the ants and the queen theory from Hudson is ill-fitting of his character anyway. I don't believe he'd say that. Right. He's at that point. He's he's torn up with fear, mm. isn't he? Quite frankly, because he's he's, he's, a grunt, he's still yeah. he's still got the sweats, and yeah, he's a grunt. But I think that's why Cameron gives it to him so that you don't notice the line. If 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 Ripley says it, then it's all all ears are in. But because Hudson says it, it's dismissed. But I just think you don't need it. Can I go back to that bug analogy that was? It wasn't really present in the first. In the first film, there's all the egg morphing stuff that got cut out, which again is mm. kind of we're into geeky territory. But um, there's a scene where Ripley discovers Brett and Dallas, and they're kind of morphing into eggs, um, which would you know dismiss this idea of a queen, uh, or or there, there would that would happen too, as well as the being a queen that lays the eggs so i don't know if uh, ridley scott ever even conceived the idea of a uh idea of a queen or even thought about it really but that discussion of the ant hive in the special edition and all that stuff um yeah i, I could do i could do without the discussion and go straight in after bishop's lead in line i think it, it, critically mm-hmm. we pick up on a lot of these things in a pod, uh, on our podcasts um like when you're experiencing something for the first time uh, like that's the only way I'd ever experienced it as, as a as a theatrical, and and when that queen shows up with the giant egg sack, we know exactly who she is. We don't need it to be to be overtly told to us earlier no. in a scene. So I agree with you, Gally. There, it's a bit overkill, isn't it? 
Well, well, you know the um, the special edition for Alien, which I'm guess we'll talk about when we get to that episode. Um, but I, I I think I messaged you, didn't I, Matt? And and said I was gutted when I first saw the special edition of Alien because I am a bit of a James Cameron stan, uh, along with Patrick's dad. Um, however, not all of his films uh, have been you know successes, but uh, you know we'll look at Avatars uh, for that for that. But the I, I always used to just like ordain him as just an utter genius, and uh, I thought he, I thought it was his idea about the cocooning mm. alien. So when I saw the special edition, it kind of undercut that because I was a I was a firm believer of the perpetual myth that James Cameron can do no wrong. You know, goes into you know you've you've heard of the you've heard of the the the, the myth, haven't you, that he goes into the Fox execs, writes Alien, then puts an S, draws two draws two lines. And, and it's a dollar sign with the S for aliens. You know, that's the, I'm not convinced of that. I'm not convinced that oh, that wow. actually happened. <laughs> no, that's fucking stupid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but these like Hollywood myth stories that, you know, that end up becoming legend and, and then just somehow become truth because it sounds good. Yeah, that one in particular <laughs> you, about the, what the aliens. What would you do with the market? <laughs> would you just drop it and walk out? Yeah, like a mic drop. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's another moment that we may have skipped over to do with versions. Uh, there's a Hadley's Hope scene um, where we see more of what's going on in the colony before we, uh, you know, get thrown into the action. And that's not present in the theatrical either. Is that um, see, seeing a Newton family roll up to the, the ship? Yes, but also the guys in the uh, the guys that are discussing that they're being oh, sent okay. out there by someone. To the the the, the uh the, the, and they've got the Wayland badge on as well, haven't they? So we know what the company it's the original is. captain of the Red Dwarf. Oh right, right. Which is yeah, yeah. There, there's a. It, it reminded me of a story connected to Jaws. Uh, there's a story about how Spielberg went in and put an extra jump scare into Jaws. You know, when Ben Gardner's head comes out of the the boat's hull, and uh, it scared the life out of people. But the audience didn't trust him after seeing it. So when the shark pops out of the water, it didn't get the scare that it originally got pre. Ben Gardner head. So uh, the audience were on edge waiting for it. So although it's a slightly different point, like one addition can weaken what you already have. So for me, all of that Hadley's Hope stuff is kind of uh, uh, you're seeing too much before it's it, it should really be revealed. Um, I, uh, you know, there's, there's things that I'll pick and choose about uh, about whether I want them in or not. I, I would personally take out the Hadley's Hope scenes uh, and i understand why they did it It was actually gail ann hurd's solution to cut out the entire reel and uh, that got the, the running time down and uh yeah so yeah i wonder what you thought about hadley's hope did, did it um did it enhance the viewing or not i agree with you um i don't, don't need it i don't need to see the wayland yutani badges staff badges because i i really like the the well very simple dialogue from burke where he says the company uh, you know, I kind of like the danger behind that that sentence rather than seeing any of Hadley's hope. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because um, you don't need to see that Newt is there in that family, the first infected family, and she survives it. You know, I, I kind of prefer finding Newt uh, as a survivor rather than establish it at the beginning as well. And I know that there was um, uh, a comic book by Dark Horse Comics uh, called Newt's Tale. I used to own it. And I, that's where I like to play with, you know, fan fiction, fan theory, what happened. You know, you could reveal all that kind of stuff in a, in a separate, you know, a separate medium. And it's probably the only time when I've ever indulged or embellished kind of fan theory. 
I don't know about what you guys think, but I'm pretty straight down the line with storytelling. If it's in a film, then it's it's canon. And if it's in some book or something that I have to read or understand, you know, Star Wars has completely yeah. lost me because mm. it's just grown arms and legs. I think it kind of diminishes the, the power of people's imagination being able to embellish the story for themselves. Mm. Like, you know, when I said, like, at the end of the film, Kara's like, oh, what happened? Like, that's kind of the great thing about a film is that you get to imagine the the surroundings it's, it actually challenges you to come up with stuff when people start like codifying and making a fucking glossary for things which don't exist i think it's doesn't it just sort of diminish it doesn't it mean that then it's just okay this is just a series of more facts that i can learn it just feels a bit kind of collectionist rather than actually uh engaging with a piece of art yeah i, I like to to read all that stuff uh, anything i can get my hands on i, I watched uh, sorry i we used to order the uh, uh aliens magazine um from from mm. our local news agents we had to order it in because they didn't carry it so every month it would would come and you know we'd pick it up and you'd look at like the leather jackets with the the uh, you could get the aliens leather jacket uh <laughs> i was never ne- i was never rich or geeky <laughs> enough to to get it so uh and there's all kinds of things like how the pulse rifles worked and all this weird stuff but they had segments of the comic books in there and i've actually been collecting the dark horse mark for hyden the original comics they're putting out these hardback editions of aliens and predator and terminator and they're, they're really great but back back then i just wanted more so it doesn't affect the film for me i, I don't I, I like those gaps that you're talking about dev and uh newt's tale is probably the exception there's some some quite interesting stuff in there but i like to fill it in myself and uh everything else is just extended stories it's just if you're a, it's a completest thing you're right if you're a fan of something you just want more so uh yeah i enjoy it on that level just, just to make a comparison from the alien worse, uh, the universe, uh, we have all touched upon why Prometheus doesn't really work for us because it ruins the mystery of alien. Uh, I don't think it really works as a prequel. And I think that mm-hmm. that's tying mm-hmm. into what you're saying mm-hmm. here as well. Yeah. No, you, you're absolutely right. And, um, the problem is you, you put yourself in a corner, baby style, and, uh, and you, you're really, You've only got so many avenues you can go down, um, and the whole idea, as as Devlin said, is that you leave it to the audience's imagination. It's it's the, it's the same with Jurassic Park. You know, the first one works as a as a kind of closed story about a, a theme park that doesn't work, and then when you have to revisit that world, you have to come up with ridiculous reasons as to why you're going to bring bring these things together and it's like no the whole idea was you get one shot of bringing these things together and then when it goes horribly wrong you learn the lesson well i think you expose your your bullshit concepts to too much scrutiny as well like the whole point of a a, a science fiction or whatever depending if it's hard sci-fi you you know you are going to want to actually explore the 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 mechanics and the specifics of of a thing and the ramifications of it but that's quite rare and usually not as uh as kind of broadly popular as uh as more commercial sci-fi the idea is that when you come up with a with a concept or a theme or or something usually you're doing it for storytelling reasons so um when uh matt you were saying that uh you're not convinced that ridley scott had worked out all of the um Mm. the reasons to to why he he did the, the things he did i and i agree i think that when there's the big field of of eggs I think it was just a fucking cool, weird visual. The idea is that it's alien. It's supposed to be alien. If you start explaining things too much, it then just becomes, you don't, if you lose the mystery, then all you're left with is like jump scares or gore or whatever. Whereas if you have something that you, you can't understand, but that seems coherent, 
at least as you watch it, you don't question it. The more you leave it on screen and the more you then have to continually go back to the same stuff over and over again, then you get into like, well, this is nonsense. And of course it's nonsense. It's something that a screenwriter came up with in order to have an exciting film. And yeah, you know, once you start getting into like in a Jurassic Park, of course you can't just put frog DNA in a thing that you found in a rock. Dino DNA. <laughs> but yeah, who cares, man? The, the, the little the, <laughs> the animated DNA told me, and he seems trustworthy. So let's talk about uh, that James Cameron, and more importantly, James Cameron and this sequel. And because we've we've talked about, or we're talking around how we think this film, I think, is uh, is particularly successful at what it what it wanted to achieve. Uh, so now let's get to how he did it. I mean, me personally, I uh, and this is this comes from watching the film countless times in that kitchen with Devlin in Leeds making spaghetti bolognese and all the other master chef tricks. <laughs> master chef um, spaghetti bolognese. <laughs> oh yeah, just need to get parmesan cheese, not not mature cheddar. Um but no, the um his command of visual storytelling in my opinion is just extraordinary because I've seen this film silently numerous times and I think you could watch it front to back muted and you'll get all the dramatic beats because he is just really, really good at visually telling a story. What he maybe not so great at is dialogue, as I've mentioned before. However, in this one, the film is populated with goddamn zingers all over the place, and you can't help but just repeat them, as we've, we've said. He takes Ridley Scott's vision, and he, he morphs it into his own film. And, and the bit that I always admire is the opening scene with the with the thing that just cuts the door open that takes ages because that's Cameron. He loves showing things happen and how it happens in great detail. It's all shot like Ridley Scott's. It's really slow, slow pans. The music's really, really muted and kind of just an undercurrent. And it's like a, it's like if you just finished watching Alien and you're watching Aliens for the first 10 minutes, you think it might be Ridley Scott that's directed this. And then it morphs into a James Cameron film. And I think it's really strong. I don't know what you guys think. Well, the, you know, I have a strange relationship with Cameron. I think he's only really made three great films. Uh, and. Oh, well, name them. I think it's obvious, isn't it? It's Terminator, uh, Aliens and Terminator 2. And, uh, you know, some people may include the, the abyss in there because it's, it's good, but it's not great. But that those three that I really enjoy, they're better than great. They're like truly exceptional and i'd consider two of them terminator 2 and aliens to be in my top 10 ever probably and you know but having said that i've attacked him on the la confidential podcast and i'm gonna use this opportunity to redress the balance with with jim cameron because he was really was one of my favorite directors even though the, the latter career sins have tainted it a bit i'm going to try and use this podcast to to wax his car a bit and you know give him his props <laughs> but yeah how did he how did he do it uh, I've got a couple of things on sequels here. He's the sequel king, isn't he? Um, I saw a YouTube video earlier. Uh, I'm going to credit Entertain the Elk. I found it on there. And his uh, rules of uh, sequels that I kind of agreed with were give the audience something new, identify what worked and build off it, change the stakes, play with expectations, and add new memorable characters. And I kind of ran all them through the uh, the James Cameron filter and he's he's ticking all those boxes he's uh he just knows how to do it he knows how to extend a universe and uh, respect the original and just add on to it brilliantly yeah it's true it it doesn't um it doesn't diminish anything that came before it which is great which again we don't want to lean too far into the series but 
we've we've hinted at the fact that that's perhaps not the case for other filmmakers who were handed the baton in this series. Um, there's a, a, a what did you say? A, a changing the stakes? Yeah, upping the stakes or changing the stakes. I mean, I think it was yeah. in relation to the company and Burke, really. But for me, it's more to do with Ripley and her return, which I wanted to get in, yeah. into a bit more later with the the, the Vietnam allegory stuff. Uh, she's like a you know a veteran returning to uh to the scene of uh her trauma you know to, to relive it but yeah changing the stakes matt that uh that kind of uh sort of check mark uh for sequels i think he, he really does do that and one of the things that is absolutely apparent is memorable characters but also changing our our hero or giving our hero um a new journey to take and and one of the things that i love in the setup for this is that clearly um, Ripley's suffering from a, a version of PTSD, the the trauma that she uh, undertook in the first one, but it doesn't define her. Um, and one of the, the the major characteristics that I love about Ellen Ripley, the character, is she she does things because she has to. She doesn't so she doesn't seek adventure as such, but she is able to um, to sort of rise to the challenge. So, for example, at the end when she goes back to newt well her original idea was we're bugging out well uh i say we take off and newt the the site from orbit she knows the the threat that the alien carries but when she has to go in when she has to go into the belly of the beast she does it because she must not because she's some sort of action bro like the marines there's another lovely moment in the special edition that you don't get in the theatrical when she stood outside the complex and she takes a deep breath before she enters which I think is is a really great moment. That it's a shame oh, that's that that's when you see um, Hicks come over and talk to her, and yeah. they have their first kind of little interaction. Yeah, I, which is great. That sows the seeds. Well, he's he's also been looking at her while they were <laughs> yeah. in the dropship, just weirdly, just <laughs> yeah. before he fell asleep. I noticed for the first time the other day the the parallel that Terminator Two has Sarah Connor mm-hmm. and Ripley. Um, in this, in the kind of story arc, because in Terminator 2, it starts off that, you know, Sarah Connor's telling her story about this time machine, uh, time traveling machine who's going to kill her son. And no one believes her. And in this, in Aliens, no one believe you know, the company don't believe her story as well. And there's flashbacks to what's going yeah. on. She dreams about the chest burster. Sarah Connor dreams about the nuclear holocaust, essentially. Right. I, I found, big parallels between the, the two in that opening section there, opening third. I think um, you're definitely on to something, Patrick, with the, uh, the parallels with Terminator 2. Um, it's almost as if the, the, the kind of the, the grander arc for each character is really, really similar in that you've mm-hmm. got um, uh, a mother whose child has been taken from them. Yeah. And then uh, in, in the case of Sarah Connor, she gets her child back, but she has to earn the the trust of her child back whereas ripley gets a surrogate daughter to kind of yeah. transfer her and then she has to equip herself both characters have to equip themselves with the skills to be able to look after and protect them usually they're learning those skills from a male character who ends up in the case of uh, um the terminator he gets kind of fucked up in the factory at the end and she's left on her own to deal with him uh, and then he sacrifices himself and, and leaves the picture, leaving the two of them together to form a, a family unit. And with Hicks, he gets kind of, um, it's in an interesting way, he gets sort of fridged 
in the same way that uh, Sandra Bullock did at the end of Demolition Man, in that uh, he becomes oh, in- for good reason, yeah, because he's injured. Which yeah, exactly. Is different. Oh, it makes it makes way more sense. Yeah, it's just, it's a, it's a thing that that they would you know it's it's classic storytelling, which is like no, I have to go it alone. It's yeah. always that I have to do this bit by myself, and there's a re- there's a, a valid story reason. But then yeah, so he's uh, so she's she's learned the the skills that she needs and then yeah. both films end with uh with with them kind of protecting and forming a a a, a family unit with their kid she's certainly a groundbreaking character isn't she because up until uh, alien 19 you know late 70s 79 really the the last female character would be survive and necessity for uh, in horror films or whatever and, and through the aid of a man but Ripley surviving Alien on her own through through her own devices is is amazing at the time, and then just to strengthen that, uh, Matt said the sequel there just changed the um, changed the arc a little bit. Ripley again going it her own way, adamantly, vehemently in Aliens um, through her own drive, and uh, yeah, it, it's. It's, these are great films for female protagonists at the time. There's a Dan O'Bannon and Ronald Shusett, uh original Alien uh, Star Beast draft. And the quote at the beginning is, uh, the crew is unisex and all parts are interchangeable for men or women. So it was always designed to be kind of uh, interchangeable. I don't think she was written necessarily as a woman. And I think that really, really helps too, that they're just written as people. And um, so... When men try writing for women, it can be, you know, notoriously difficult. So, but so I think it's commendable that they were doing that back then. So, uh, how feminist yeah. it, it was intended to be, I don't know, because I think Ridley Scott kind of wanted to surprise the audience in, in, in a way that, uh, the, she would be the sole survivor. You'd expect Tom Skerritt to be, um, you know, the last man standing, perhaps. So I think maybe he was doing it for, for, um, reasons other than feminism, but it kind of works on that, on that level too. Scott Scott actually wanted to kill her off at the end of the Oh, is that right? Yeah, but intervening and he, he was he was convinced otherwise. Um he yeah, he was talked out of it um as a stronger Well the the producers story. on Aliens are quite are quite strong, aren't they? Gyler and uh, Hill have got quite a lot of influence and sway with this series. But I think I think uh, you know, not to not to talk about the first one too much, but I think maybe Scott was just looking at it from a he was doing a horror film in space. Yeah, that's and it. That's it yeah. He was he was probably he was probably looking at it from that perspective of well, what's the what's the given trope? And like you said, Matt, it would have been a surprise to see Captain mm. Scarrett go um, when he did. Yeah, Dallas. or Dallas. I'm sorry, but he's just <laughs> Scarrett to me. Also, after Aliens, though, at the time in the 80s, like just just to give a bit of context for a female action star and how how groundbreaking this was, you couldn't just a, an interesting side that I read up on is you couldn't get a if you went into an arcade and you play your video games, it's always male lead mm. uh, action stars or games that you're playing. And Aliens had their own um, uh, arcade game that came out that was the only Ooh, I've female it. it's shit. kind of protagonist. <laughs> yeah, but it, it's amazing that it's the only one, unless you played with Mrs. Pac-Man, this is <laughs> the only female-driven like computer game at, at the time, which was mm. awesome, even though it was shit. It was groundbreaking and terrible at the same time. Things can be two things. Can I ask Gally about a? Uh, sorry, I wanted to ask you, Gally, about the the virtual ride just for a second. The uh, I have this weird weird memory of, of of a virtual ride at my local showcase 
a Teesside cinema. Um, there was like one of those ro- rocking vans that kind of had a, <laughs> it wasn't 3D, I don't think, but it had the seats that moved and it was aliens, but it was definitely not official. Was it the, the kind of the white capsule one? Yeah, yeah. That sits up on the, on the gimbal. Yeah, and it had a drop ship in it and there was aliens in it, but yeah. it can't have been official. Alton Towers, um, did something similar with a interactive ride where they, the end, you know, when you're queuing up and they normally have the video screens with mm. the getting you ready, you know, you're about to face your <laughs> nemesis. Um, well, they had one. Um, they had one with aliens, and it was an absolute yeah. ripoff. I mean, they, you know, it was all the it was all the the trackers, and the, you know, they couldn't hear anything in the dark. But mm. they're marines. But yeah, it, the, the the film's ubiquity is is has been is widely known because I think it was in all sorts of media, and it's been ripped off to yes. absolute high heaven. Um, I, I wanted to I wanted to say one thing though. It was more of a question, really. So Sigourney Weaver, I I think I know why Ghostbusters is not really a series that I absolutely adore. And I think it's because I can't watch Sigourney Weaver in a film where she's not the smartest person in the room mm-hmm. because of her association with Ellen Ripley. And I didn't know if you guys either had something similar with her or with another uh, actor or actress. Because I, I when I watch Ghostbusters, I'm always thinking, oh, Sigourney's not. Dana. Yeah. Yeah. Well, she's younger and prettier in Alien and, uh, she's more mature and androgynous in Aliens, like in the best way, like not in a David Bowie, uh, Ziggy Stardust kind of way. But I, I think he would, he... although the hair is a bit, it's a bit Tim Curry <laughs> yeah. in this one. <laughs> I think Bowie would lose a battle with an alien queen, I think. You, you can buy her, like, authority <laughs> and her fragility. And I think she's a tremendous visual actress. You can see everything just written on her face without without dialogue it's just unmistakable talent really i think she is um my favorite actress of all time really and if only for these for these movies and uh i i didn't really find her super attractive i think that's that androgyny again but um when i saw ghostbusters i recently i kind of realized how how beautiful she is but back then i, I just saw her as a as a character really i didn't really she wasn't so much objectified like usually when you ask a, a kind of a, a man who his favorite actress is he'll choose someone completely based on on looks you know and, and if i was going to go that way you know you'd say like bridget bardot or claudia cardinal or, or someone like that but really alicia silverstone yeah alicia silverstone totally <laughs> she's up there yeah Sound okay okay uh, but you know sigourney weaver's performances in the aliens film set her apart from from all of that and i think um She's one of my all-time favorite actresses, if not the, the my favorite, uh, playing one of my all-time favorite characters in one of my all-time favorite films. So it's the triple threat here. So um, there's that one scene gearing up in the lift when she goes back to save Newt that is one of my favorite things that I've ever, ever seen. We can save that for favorite scenes if you want, but that's just, uh, I find it extremely moving yeah. and uh, it's, it's just fantastic so yeah i i really like her but not on on the level that you would usually appreciate and and objectify an actress i think she's she's got a lot of depth to what she does so um yeah i think she's fantastic if my cousin ben is watching uh, i'm just going to mention that he he's a he has a huge crush on sigourney weaver matt oh yeah he absolutely adores her yeah uh <laughs> yeah he's quite funny about it but i i i really enjoyed what he said there about weaver and i agree with all of it i think she's fucking ace yeah well, should we, should we run through the cast? Um, because one of the things, again, it's a bit of a Cameron thing. He's got a pension for, for female characters. There's never any questioning 
that Vasquez is the baddest <laughs> of all of the movies. Yeah. It's just, it's Vasquez. And that's what I love about it. And, you know, nowadays you see um, these sort of basement dwelling dweebs kind of kick off about, oh, they're taking our films away. They're making them so mm-hmm. female driven. It's like the re... Sometimes the reason why is because they get baited. And one of the things that Cameron does is he just does it. He does it. The film and the characters within the film don't make a big deal about it. So if you don't make a big deal about it, it just becomes yeah. normal. And if you make a big deal about it, then it becomes yeah. a point. And that point can can rile those basement dwellers and then they get really angry. Yeah. In this, you look at Vasquez, even um, the pilot, when the alien comes in, she doesn't just take it lying right. down. She tries to defend herself and then she gets taken out. She's also clearly in charge of that little ship. Yeah, she's yeah. the boss. Yeah, spunk she's like, <laughs> Spunkmeyer. <laughs> damn it. <laughs> Do you not think it was cool the way they flipped the script on, on Paxton and, and Vasquez, uh, Hudson Vasquez? He's basically playing a, a feminization of a male character and she's playing the masculinization of a, of a female character. Really nice moment between Vasquez and Hudson when she taps him on the chest like, and she doesn't say anything, but you know she's saying, sort your shit out, let's get the job done. Yep. Yeah. Uh, I love that moment. That's great. Uh, we missed one thing earlier about uh, Burke. There's a there's a deleted scene where Ripley comes across Burke after he's been cocooned um, when she's going back to face the Queen. Oh, really? Yeah, you can find it on YouTube. That's not on the special. It, it's, not, okay. it, it's not in any cut apart from the CBS original broadcast in 1988, which was on American telly. And they added a couple of things in. There's, there's also another um, uh, kind of mythical scene uh, featuring Burke, sorry, featuring um, Bishop that was probably likely never shot, where he's crawling through the pipe and an alien kind of uh, he, he faces off against an alien in the in the tunnel when he's going to get the dropship. But it's in it's in the novelization. But as far as people can tell, it's it's never been filmed. Uh, although some people swear that they've they've seen it. And that's another thing that you were saying yeah. connected to what you were saying, Dev, about people extending their own kind of ideas about what happens where and creating their own fan fiction. So it's a very powerful film for that stuff. Is it the Shazam effect? I don't know. You know, the idea that uh, uh, people like um, uh, misremember things to the point where they basically invent them and are convinced that it's the thing that definitely happened. Yeah. People think that there was a film starring Sinbad called Shazam. Oh, that's right, yeah. To the point that they will hassle Sinbad on Twitter and ask him where the fuck they can watch Shazam. <laughs> and he's like, no, that's also kind of racist because Shaquille O'Neal was in Kazam, but we are completely yeah. different men. It, it, and that's not the same. It's exactly that, but... The, the Burke one exists and she, uh, he, he kind of grabs her and, uh, in, in the theatrical cut and the special edition, you hear an explosion while she's going back to look for Newt. And, uh, you just assume that it's because the whole place is collapsing and, and small explosions are being detonated everywhere. Yeah. But it's actually, she gives him a, a grenade to, to kill himself. She actually shows mercy in that moment to, to one of the most evil characters. We haven't really discussed Burke too much, but he's an incredibly, uh, what a devil he is, but she, she actually takes, pity on him and gives him one of those grenades so he can end it he, he says there's something moving inside him and it's very dark that sounds ace Matt. It, do, it does but what it does unfortunately would it, not so much as in the first alien film where where she finds dallas and um brett and the egg morphing stuff that killed the the the, the momentum of, of the final act there i think what cameron tried to do is do the exact same thing but do it quickly but I, th- I think what Gally's saying is, is relevant. That it's, it's even though it's a short scene, it does it does kill. Um, yeah, that she's, on a, she's on a quest. Yeah. she's got. A, she's, mm, but yeah, but sure. I, I love seeing him cocoon because he's he's awful. But um, yeah, the, the idea of Hudson being cocooned just makes me very sad. I just I don't want to think about it. And and I guess I guess the um, the the 
the common wisdom would be that um, you know Burke is a shit, and let's talk about him. So we would want to see him kind of get it. But I like the fact that it's just quick. You know, he he, di- he ditches them. He tries to go out on his own because um, you know he thinks he's he's, he's smart enough to outwit. Uh, and then he gets he gets caught by an alien and he's done. I I just prefer how clean that is. I I really like the way the alien almost smiles. At if you break down what he did in in order to to deserve this, he uh, under the guise of a kind man returning a cat. He what does he actually do? <laughs> he he sits in on the meetings to hear Ripley's LV four twenty six story, and then he phones into the colony to get the terraformers to check out if there's a a, a spaceship there or not, setting the entire thing in motion. Um, you know, as a kid, I didn't realize how responsible Burke was for, for the entire mm. thing. Um, but, you know, after Ripley confronts him, he tries to impregnate her and Newt with with two face huggers and then sabotage everyone else's freezer, killing everyone apart from him. And then there's also another opportunity for him to redeem himself. But he runs away during a firefight and locks himself away from the others while uh, they have to deal with these with these creatures so he's totally deserving of the mm-hmm. cocooning but I'm, I'm uncertain whether it belongs in in any cut of the of the film really doesn't ripley say as well mm. that he, she read the log and he'd ordered it's him yeah the colony it's all him. to go yeah do the, yeah the that, that i i really struggled Shit, um right. with uh, uh that has actually the first time that that timeline has been cleared up for me because i there was the one confusion that that we had when we were watching it the other night which was um when she confronts him about the the log, I just I couldn't put mm. the the timeline together that that's what he was doing. Wait a sec. You sent them to that ship. You're wrong. I just checked the colony log. Directive dated six twelve seventy nine. Signed Burke Carter J. You sent them out there and you didn't even warn them. Why didn't you warn them, Burke? Okay, look. What if that ship didn't even exist? Did you ever think about that? I didn't know. So now if I went and made a major security situation out of it, everybody steps in, administration steps in, and there's no exclusive rights for anybody. Nobody wins. So I made a decision, and it was wrong. It was a bad call, Ripley. It was a bad call. Bad call? These people are dead, Burke! Don't you have any idea what you've done here? Well, I'm going to make sure that they nail you right to the wall for this. You're not going to sleaze your way out of this one. Right to the wall. And one of the cool thing is that she says to Burke, they're going to nail you right to the wall for this one, right to the wall. And he actually gets yeah. nailed to the wall by the aliens that he's actually pinned hey. up against the wall. Oh, so it's, it's brilliant, brilliant writing, brilliant foreshadowing. Uh, one of the things on Burke as well, and it was a bit of a theory that I've always had, the fact that they get Gorman feels like it's absolutely done on purpose. Let's have a patsy that Burke can push around. It's a great scene, isn't it, when they're in the dropship and they can see that Gorman's sweating and he looks nervous. And again, Ripley's so observant. How many drops is this for you, Lieutenant? 38. Simulated. How many combat drops? Uh, two. Including this one. Shit. (laughs) Oh, man. And he's always in the background of all of this. Yeah. And and this is how this is how deep cut his uh, his turncoat is. When the dropship explodes, there's a there's a line off camera that's like, maybe we should build a fire, sing a couple of songs. Yeah. How about we try that? 
And I'm just like, <laughs> yep, that does sound like someone trying to be nice. What a wanker. Yeah, his later career was, was I mean, he was most famous for Mad About You, mm. slightly irritating sitcom with Helen Hunt. I don't know what he was doing before this film. There's some stand-up on was... YouTube. I put it in the playlist for the site. Uh, oh, okay. Three appearances on Letterman. And uh, right. I don't particularly enjoy his stand-up, but I, I do find him, it, it's great casting because I find him quite slimy, you know, in some way. I, I know exactly what Cameron saw in him. Uh, so he's not really funny, he's just slimy. I assumed from the, um, you know, from the kind of later Mad About You stuff that this whole thing is, you know, it's a kind of uh, a squishy middle class affability, mm. which has, which they've, yeah, they've harnessed really well to turn him into like a, yeah, a nefarious shit. <laughs> There's a moment at the beginning where, uh, in the beginning, when they've come out of the cryo sleep ready to go into LV46 and um, Ripley realizes that Bishop is a synthetic mm-hmm. and the way um, uh, Riser plays the, I, I didn't even think to tell you there was a, mm. you know, and he tells the story yeah, about, like you knew. Uh, yeah, you, you don't believe him. No. He does that very well. And, and, his, uh, and his opening line is about being uh, a company man, but don't hold that against me. And it just, yeah. <laughs> you just know then, but you kind of want to trust him. He's bringing a cat back, you know, why not? Uh, set up and payoff is a really uh, important part of this film that Cameron does extremely well. I know you've got, uh, a favorite moment in this one, Gally? I do, I do. And as a youngling, I, it never really dawned on me how, how very, very subtle it was. But, um, in, in an age of nitpickers, um, this one cannot be picked. Uh, Ellen Ripley seen smoking at the beginning of the film, never has another cig, but has a fag when she's with Jonesy in her little apartment. Hence, when she's in med lab, um, and she's stuck with Newt, Again, Ripley, so resourceful, so intelligent, pulls out the lighter and you're like, mm-hmm. of course you'd have a lighter. She <laughs> smokes. So yeah, it's just one of my, it's one of my absolutely favorite little bits of subtle setup and payoff. And it's one of, it's, it's, it's ultimately, it, we talked about it before. It, it leads into the family shot with Hicks, Ripley yeah. and Newt, but I love the way that, um, Hicks and the team just grab and he walks past a fire extinguisher, then pulls and grabs it. And then when he sees, he just says like, shoot it out. Jumps through and, uh, and Hudson gets his first sort of moment of redemption when he protects Newt. The facehuggers themselves are so creepy and scary and it plays on all those primeval uh, sort of fears, you know, spiders yeah. mainly yeah. for me. The, the shot where it's crawling towards um, her when she's on the on the floor, they, they use like a, wi- a wind-up um, puppet of yeah. some kind. I, I don't know exactly. They explained it on the documentary how it was made, but it went over my head. As, uh, the, the little puppets, so they, they said that there was, what, three? So you had like, um, uh, a little a floppy one. I uh, think that has like, um, like cams within it so that the, the legs all move independent of each other yeah. and they can drag it forwards. And then there's a second one which, yeah, it's, it's floppy. Yeah. And then they lay it over the table leg and then they <laughs> yank it. Yeah. They yank it with a string. Yeah. Back, uh, oh, no, to get it to jump up, they put it on the table and then they yank it down and reverse so that it. when they reverse it it looks like it's jumping up and like slithering onto it yeah. and then they and then they do another one which they yank straight at the camera lens and fuck that is uh it's brilliant oh it, it honestly is sending a chill up me right now thinking yeah. of that scene and those shots because that is pure nightmare fuel for me i think it's awful <laughs> um but you know at the same time just extraordinary horror within this action film that that whole sequence is astonishing. I mm. think the other pay up, um, setup and payoff uh, that, that's really 
brilliant is the the power loader. Some people think it's a bit overt, but I, I think that the way they set that up, uh, the Bay 12, please, you know, what, help in, in any way you can. What can you do? And then she kind of, you have to set up the fact that she can do that. She can't just appear in a machine like that. So yeah. I, I just appreciate that it was it was set up, um, you know, fairly obviously, but but it needed to be done and I, I still enjoy it. It's also a nice character yeah. to beat yeah. for her early to show that this is a capable. Yeah. This is a capable person. This is a character who's who, who's you know who's not going to be sitting yeah. back and 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 then we get treated to a pony's laugh as well when, when she does. Is <laughs> a great great thing. Yeah. And and Hicks falls in love in in that moment probably. You can argue. One of the things that James Cameron does really well in this film, uh, and it's something that I think uh, Ridley Scott is also praised for, is just attention to detail. So when you're trying to set up like a believable sci-fi world. You need the tech to feel tactile and, you know, it can't just be lasers because that just seems silly and kind of nonsensical. So Mm, everything in this world is done process and he shows it. So even, even the trackers are great. Obviously it's been used now in computer games and it's just a way of, of showing the sheer amount of aliens without having the money to have CGI aliens. But how much more effective is it that they've just got trackers than to see hordes yeah. of aliens uh, running around? Because in my mind, I would much rather have the low-budget, lo-fi tech than than CGI aliens running around. I think one of the keys to what you're saying, Gally, is that there was two designers, two lead designers, uh, futurist Sid Mead, uh, who did Blade Runner and Tron. And he, he designed the Sulaco and the dropship and the, the APC armored car. And then there was Ron Cobb who did everything on the ground, all the, the colony and all, all that, the, the stuff with the bars and uh, the lab and all that stuff. So you had one who was just kind of imagining the possibilities and then another that was grounding it in, in how it could, could function. So, um, it was a, it was a good team working together on that one. I love the way we were introduced to Sid Mead in the making of documentary. I didn't. Uh, I'd, I'd heard the name, but I'd never really heard him speak. So oh I, yeah. I watched him, and he, he said, uh, "He's just this dude in a chair, old fellow." <laughs> I was, uh, I was judging Miss World <laughs> when I dropped the. Call. I was like, "Who picked you? Why are you an authority on that?" Design me a flying car. Yeah. The allegory of uh, yeah military combat. Uh, you know, James Cameron is a child of. Vietnam War. He certainly would have grown up during it. So, and it's un, it's undeniable. It's right there, isn't it? It's right there in front of you in the armor that they're wearing and some of the iconography. The way they paint paint their own slogans on it and stuff is really a full metal jacket. Yeah, it is, isn't it? I think, uh, is it Drake that's got skull bones uh, hanging from his um, headband, which is just great. I I do like, I love that they had, they're all trained together, you know, to get that camaraderie because I think the, on-screen chemistry between everyone really, really adds to this film. Uh, it kind of, you, you, I feel, I always feel like I'm part of a gang. This is a film that makes me want to go out and shoot aliens as well. Because yeah. uh, I, I do enjoy how they're, they're portrayed and, and work together. It's clever, you know, simple tricks on set, keep Sigourney Weaver away from them while they're training up and then bring her in and you get the idea you get the feeling that they are outsiders and has to earn a way in. Patrick, here's a question then. You were, you were just discussing then about um, how, you know, some of the tricks, some of the directorial tricks that you can use to form a team. We've seen this, I know I have, in countless films since. You know, teams of Marines, 
gun wielding whatevers, um, bravado, and then and then undercut. And it's they tend to just be stock characters that you don't give a monkeys about, and they tend to just be there for the body count. What is it about aliens and this particular set of marines that means that they are the exemplar? Because I'm with you. I I feel like I'm part of the gang, and I also I feel the loss. Even someone like Frost, who gets about four lines, when he goes. Uh, maybe, maybe not Wishbasky because I've never even met him, but you know what I mean? When, when, when Frost goes, I'm like, shit, that's Frost. You know, we can't use harsh language. Um, yeah, well, I, what I have, then? I've got some, I have some notes here that, um, I, I don't know whether it's just the thing that this is quite an original concept in aliens. This is the first time it's done like this. Uh, I can't think of anything that predates this, that, that creates these characters that, uh, goes against the trope of, uh, almost, you know, Star Trek red shirts that people that just, um, can die straight away without r- real thought. Mm. I think you feel every death in this film. I think, um, I'm just, I've got my notes here written on the influence of the film. Do, do any of you play Call of Duty? I have done in the past, mm. yeah. So I, I, I love, I love Call of Duty and right now it's quite a massive thing with Warzone, this free game online, which is huge and has really entertained me during lockdown. It's been mm-hmm. quite, quite a good thing to have. And I, I don't see that Call of Duty exists without aliens. There's the motion sensor, you know, yes, it's all military, um, kind of factual technology mm-hmm. and guns for Call of Duty to draw upon, but the camaraderie, the, the, the way that the atmosphere is presented here, and you know, sometimes Hollywood gets accused of being a, um, a subtle advert to join the army, mm-hmm. you know, and, and being funded by. I don't see it this way. I see this as Cameron writing characters. I, I think he always believes in characters. You get, um, you might not like Avatar, a galley from what you've said before, but the general in it with his scars, he's a fucking great character in the film because he's an evil piece of shit. And just, I think he, Cameron really revels and enjoys, um, the dialogue and, and the, oh, maybe I just thought of Full Metal Jacket for something similar to compare mm. it to. But, but casting, um, your man Apone, who, who has a military background as well, to help, uh, herd this cast and, and to bring them together, I think feels almost unique. You know, I, I, I think of how I feel when I watch Band of Brothers, one of my favorite ever TV shows and, and the, the, the title is exactly what it says. It's a band of brothers that I really feel like I get really involved in in every character. It has longer to develop them, but there's something here, isn't there, Galley, that in a short amount of time, a dinner sequence, the beginning, a pone's, um, introduction, them coming out of, of hypersleep. It, uh, it's set up wonderfully. Uh, Drake and Vasquez is, immediate and i'm well into the characters from the old i think you connecting it to video games is is spot on as well with the there's a pov element to it as well we're often seeing what Mm -hmm. the uh what the marines are seeing and the cameras on the helmets and things like that and the motion trackers i think it all plays into video games it's a highly it it, it influenced all of that stuff no doubt well playing call of duty matt there there is like stay frosty is dialogue that i've heard in a computer game and i recognize tropes from this uh but then i they're also called duty draws upon things like saving private ryan uh, uh, as well but it's definitely there cameron chose to to use vietnam as a reference for his dialogue because it was the most contemporary war at the time so the way that the soldiers spoke to each other he used that as an influence for the movie because this whole idea of, of grounding it in realism using the terminology 
um, and, and to, to ground the action maneuvers, the way they moved around and communicated. Uh, every time you make a sci-fi film, I think if you create it in, in a really foreign way, to us we're going to be too detached from it so like alien was mm-hmm. truckers in space and aliens is like grunts and soldiers in space so everything you see yeah. you kind of have a connection to but he's he's furthering it he's continuing it uh, but he's grounding it in realism first i think also matt it, it's the future aspect to it it's we, we the war films that we will have seen before have been in the past yeah. And, and this is kind of a war film in, in a way, really. There, there's there's a, a regiment here, and I think there's the I spoke about like the uniqueness of it, a futuristic war film. Totally. He's described it as a, you know, like, a combat movie. That's how he described it. Mm, combat, yeah. And you know, like um, Drake and Vasquez's guns built on a Steadicam rig that look fucking cool. Mm. You know, that's a really attractive bit of production design there. That is something new, fresh. The the sound design of it, the how much these guys are enjoying. I, I mean, is it which character says, I hate this job, but you don't really believe it because everyone else oh, is frost again. That's, fired up. That's frost. Frost is frost. Yeah. Yeah. It's frost. And that's, that's the only line he really gets to set him up, Gally. And I'm already like, this guy's cool, mm. you know? Um, well, you know what it is, Patrick, as well. Cam, Cameron, uh, Cameron doing, you know, again, just extending from the first one. The important mm-hmm. scene with the Marines in my eyes is the dinner scene. You know, you get, you get a yeah. little glimpse of everybody mm-hmm. sat around the table. You get the knife with, uh, with Bishop, which sets it, you know, tells you who he is. We, we now know he's an android, but it's also, it's the, it's the bit where Hudson's mask yeah. slips. You know, he's all bravado. And then the moment <laughs> his hand's in the way and he's actually going to be in danger, he's like, Oh, that's yeah. not funny, man. You know, it's all there. Oh, well, what's this crap supposed to be? Cornbread, I think. It's good for you, boy. Eat it. Hey. I'm sure we're mind getting some more of that Arturian boom thing. Remember that time? <laughs> yeah, bro. The one that you had was male. <laughs> it doesn't matter when it's Arturian, man. <laughs> hey, Bishop, man. Do the thing with the Oh, knife. please. Oh, come on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Do it, man. This is great. All right. Yeah. 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 Hey, what are you doing, man? Hey, what are you doing? <laughs> Come on, quit messing around, Drake. Come on. Bishop? Hey, man. Do it, Bishop. Hey, not me, man. <laughs> yeah, you. Hey, come on, quit messing around. Don't move. Come on. Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> The, uh, the Vietnam allegory is quite interesting. The, it's this idea of confident troops in a foreign environment and their, their mm-hmm. cockiness ends up being their downfall. You know, America's overconfidence in Vietnam and, and like mm-hmm. a misjudgment and a misunderstanding and an underestimation of the enemy, really. And, and also being involved for questionable, you know, reasons, unjust reasons, perhaps. Um, so there's, there's a connection there, but also we mentioned it earlier about, um, veterans enlisting again to go back into this hell and like the, the mm-hmm. psychological reasonings for that. And that's all there in the Ripley character. There's an inner demon that needed to be exercised. I think James Cameron said, he put it that way. I've got a little story, Matt, which I think you're going to really enjoy here, actually. Um, and Gally, you mentioned like director tra- training up your, your, um, cast. Uh, I actually got to witness that a bit firsthand on Edge of Tomorrow. Um, I, I've done a lot of military training in certain films, especially with, um, with sporting artists. You have to get them, you know, people say they, they've got a military background or handle guns. And then you get them in, you're like, you've, you've never touched a toy gun or a water gun, let alone a real one. Go off you go. But, um, on Edge of Tomorrow, I was looking after the cast when they were doing their, um, military maneuvers, um, training 
uh, um, I won't go through the cast list, but it, it was all but, but Tom Cruise and included Bill Paxton as well. Um, and cause they had the, I don't know, you've seen the film, they've got the exosuits, which are quite big and you have to get, they had to get used to them. So that, that was really cool to watch that firsthand, but also I, I could see just to talk about the great man, cause he is a great man to me. I, I love Bill Paxton. Um, I love watching him do it and, we, I think I've mentioned it before, but there was the drop ship scene in Aliens and we had a drop ship scene or scenes in Edge of Tomorrow as well. And I had a few supporting artists there looking after. And I think there was a little bit of an error on set where we were aware that Bill Paxton's on a drop ship again. This is fucking cool. And we finally eked out of him to say, running the express elevator to hell going down. <laughs> and he said it and we were all absolutely, yeah, that was great. That was a great day. <laughs> Terrific guy, by all accounts, I think. Um, many great stories about him. And- well, absolutely. And yeah, well, I'll, I'll throw my, uh, my story in the ring. I know that Patrick did me an absolute solid and it still <laughs> lives right at the top of my collection. Um, when you were on set of Edge of Tomorrow, you, um, I think you said at the rap party, you managed to get a. No, no, it was on set. It was, it was on. Oh, was it on set? Was it? Oh, that's, he <laughs> makes it even better. What an absolute yeah. legend. He, uh, he signed a copy of, uh, Aliens. Uh, for me, uh, to me, and uh, yeah, I'll always be thankful. Yeah. And it's just, uh, he's just such a, a really great performer. And, and the fact that Hudson becomes most people's, if not favourite, but certainly their most memorable character uh, yeah. amongst this cast of uh, characters in this film, just goes to show how charismatic and and what a great actor he was as well. He wasn't just like some punchline to just be, you know, a bit of a buffoon. You know, for those of you. Uh, maybe I'll pick it one day in the future, but uh, a simple plan, Sam Raimi's film, he's fucking great in that. I think he, um, I think he really humanizes that ensemble. I think when we're saying that, you know, you mm-hmm. really feel like you're part of the gang, if it weren't for him constantly cajoling and joking and bitching and crying and stuff, mm. you, you lose that sort of human connection to it, maybe. Yeah. My- I owe debt of gratitude, Gally, to Ted's, uh, an AD friend of mine who was his, his like set PA, uh, on it. And he let me know when Bill went back to his trailer and I had a window. So I took the DVD there and it got checked to him. It was like, and you know, he was like, yeah, man, I'm, I'm happy to do it. Yeah, great. Who am I signing this to? And, um, I also got him <laughs> to sign a copy of Tombstone for my dad, uh, who, I mean, like Bill Paxton's my dad's favorite actor I, I, he loves all these roles and he goes tombstone oh man da- guys your dad's age fucking love this movie <laughs> and he just happily signed it and he he was such a dude yeah we should honorable mention the queen as well i think because the, you know they really don't make films like this anymore and you could argue it's a bold statement but you could argue that it's the last great practical creature you can maybe argue the t-rex in jurassic park but you know, Stan Winston's work is, you know, pre-CG, this is, this is as good as it gets. And I, I think, I don't believe Sigourney's performance would be as compelling if that queen had been painted in later with, with computer graphics. And I think it would be fine to do that today, but you know, the, the, the hellish feeling of being in the same room as it must have contributed to, to her performance. Mm. Really. And that disgusting egg laying as well. Yeah. yeah. You mentioned before, Matt, about extending the the universe so to speak well the character gets extended as in the xenomorph you know in the first one it's a mm-hmm. killing machine in this one it does have little little moments of of character when the queen sees that ripley is threatening yeah, she calls the him hive, off 
and he and she just nods she nods them so to cool. call them off it's just those yeah. little bits that you just think no this is it these are characters they're not you know this isn't just a monster in the house characters but also um they've they've really pulled from uh like hudson kind of laid out a little too thick which is that it's a it's a, an ant colony and an ant colony operates as a kind of symbiotic group that the colony like is the the yeah. the person if if that makes any sense an individual ant doesn't matter it's uh, unless you're watching the movie ants <laughs> but no one will now because of woody allen Ooh, it's awkward. <laughs> and it's just alone, isn't it? Bugs life forever. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, the idea of like the, 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 the queen rules the colony and so the, the individual aliens that all get killed off that are just mm. kind of, you know, faceless antagonists. Like when they, they get gunned down by the sentry guns and you don't know how many of yeah. them must have been destroyed during that. You can only assume it's dozens, if not hundreds. Um, so it's, it's kind of cool that, uh, I don't know how much of that was, was taken from, uh, Starship mm. Troopers, the novel. I assume that that had a massive yeah. influence on this. The idea of like bug hunts and stuff. Um, I mean, James Cameron, as we know from Terminator, potentially has form in uh, uh, taking influences from things that are maybe not um, made, wholly his. Yes. Uh, 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 to yeah, exactly. <laughs> he, he takes. He doesn't always credit exactly where these things are coming from. Did your lawyer help you with the yeah, word? Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, funny <laughs> enough, Dablin, I watched Starship Troopers last week with my dad when he was up here. And there are two bits that I was like, wait a minute, in the film. And I thought, I've never read the original uh, text. So if you have, help me out. There is a scene where a character blows himself up for the sake of others, like Vasquez yeah. and Gorman do um in starship troopers and there is also that that bug element because there's there's nothing of that in the first alien at all no. that's something that, that he brought to this um the, the the decal painted on the uh on the plane that the production designer was really proud of oh, yeah. he said it was only on screen for about like two seconds and it was too small to see the eagle clutching the thing with the big boots the bug stumper and the line what's the line dev we endanger species that's the one, yeah, yeah, yeah. They had it, um, didn't they? They had it embroidered into crew jackets, which was the cool thing to do in the eighties. Oh, yeah. oh, they still do it, though. <laughs> do they? Do you have any terrible ones? Um, I've got, I've got some decent ones here, actually. Not so much. Yeah, I've got, I've got a really cool. Um, I like my man from Uncle one because it's quite plain. I feel like there's one more character that we need to mention before we get to our summaries, but it actually feeds into what you were saying, Devlin, about Cameron cherry picking ideas from others. So Isaac Asimov, the Three Laws of Robotics, which then is 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 absolutely front and center in this. It's the AI um, kind of rules for uh, for Bishop, which then leads us into. Bishop and Lance Henriksen's performance playing playing Bishop in a way where we're thinking we're waiting for him to turn, aren't we? And the whole fil- the film itself is just like, nope, he's not going to turn. He is nice, you know. More cornbread. Well, it does tease it a little bit. There's the the scene where he's uh, with the specimens and he says, "Magnificent, isn't it?" And he kind of gives a long look yeah, to yeah, Spunkmeyer and say it again. It's got the hint hints of that. I admire its purity stuff. And and later on when he he's disappointed. We, um, Ripley's come up with new, and he's not there. Yeah, and it's, that just adds to that payoff again because you think he could be, you think he could turn on her, but he's he's heroic to the last, and he actually saves Newt, doesn't he, when she's being blown away by the. Uh... Again, there's a Terminator thing there, you know, like uh, 
the Terminator is bad in the in the first one in Terminator Two, you expect Arnie to be bad, but he's good. Yeah, yeah. It's that subversion, thing. that sequel. He's a king of the sequels. No. We, we've mentioned the behind the scenes documentary on that's uh, really good. And I think, Gally, you're a big fan of. Um, you've not really spoken about it. How you think it's? Did you say the behind the scenes documentary is like how you think all the behind the scenes documentaries should be made? Oh, the, the warts and all factor. It's a warts and all factor, yeah. Well, I think um, isn't a, a lot of that because everything worked so well. Like, I know that uh, uh, later films they were as candid, but there's something to be said for this. Where uh, I know Patrick, especially, you're a, a huge fan of the production design, mm. and like seeing how they put those sets together and how they did so so kind of frugally, but with such creativity. Like that, the uh, the 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 big kind of armored car is um uh, a towing vehicle from uh that that would be used to tow Heavy airplanes. Heavy as fuck. Yeah, they said there was like a, I I can't remember what they said. It took a million tons. So, I think it was something. seven tons. I've got it written somewhere. But yeah, yeah, it's fucking huge. Like uh, and they had to reinforce floors to get it around, and of course, it, it led to these kind of ridiculous problems that they had, and that they had. Uh, um, like vacuum foam plastic all over the, the sets and stuff and what they were doing was just dressing the sets enough so that when they lit it, it would look great. And the, the, the Xenomorph suits, they completely changed the design of it because they were only going to use very, very small amounts of light on it. So you could really push the design more. And they had the kind of the exoskeleton being really kind of bright on it so that you'd see just these these shapes and shadows and stuff. I guess that, that makes a, a difference. Whereas there's definitely something to be said for... um watching a total failure be made in front of your eyes but uh that's a different that's a different thing well the other and the and the other insight dabbling is obviously cameron's got a bit of a reputation i used to have a t-shirt um but but also it kind of gives an insight to the struggles and the challenges and i know that it's pretty infamous now um i do think that uh in the production bit some of the actors maybe uh, go a bit too far. I'm looking at Lance Henriksen with his tough guy New York act, but 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 certainly yeah. you ever yeah, lay your hands on <laughs> wearing wearing a scarf as he says it. Um, but no, um, one of the things that uh, you know really gives you an insight into is just James Cameron just running around doing everything, and it's, it's again it perpetuates the myth that this one guy, this one guy. You know, his vision, his vision, but, it, but you see it in the making of, of him running around doing other people's jobs because he's mm-hmm. kind of done. My, my favorite moment is the face hugger bit where he's, uh, he's got the fishing line attached to the face <laughs> yeah. hugger and he's trying to show them how to pull a face hugger off a, a cabinet properly. And he's like, you yeah. just make it look like it's jumping. And then he goes, get, get some gloves. You can't pull without gloves. Call but me when you're ready. ready. Get some gloves and call me That's when you're ready. I mean, call me when you're ready. I've seen that as well. Yeah. So it's, it's very true, you know. I, I liked it because they were being dicks to him. They were often in the pub at lunch times and having, by all yeah. accounts, having pints. And then the tea ladies coming in every five minutes to disturb the the shots. And there's a rumor that he smashed up the tea ladies' trolley as well in yeah. that documentary. He went, he went so. full Alex Ferguson. Didn't yeah. All <laughs> well, the crew loved Ridley Scott because he was British and knew the British ways. But yeah. Um, for Cameron coming over to Pinewood and doing this and not not being accustomed to 
cups of tea breaks and you know but, but like it, it's, it was weird watching that behind the scenes because you, you can't fucking kill your crew by overworking them you've got to have a break but Cameron's obviously a, a fucking beast isn't he and just yeah, he's running on adrenaline there's a line about the directors that run on adrenaline yeah. and they just don't feel yeah. tired because it's their baby yeah. and everyone else is just putting a shift in you know so yeah. you've got to take it all into account but I guess um we we I mean we had that on like a really small scale I remember working on some like completely underfunded nonsense short films back in Leeds and like some some douchebag who thinks that this is this big break is like mm-hmm. working you for you know 14 hour days with absolutely no uh concept of safety and it's like I'm doing this for 30 quid a day mm-hmm. like this I'm basically doing you a favor yeah, right. and uh you get I think it filters down sometimes this idea of the renegade genius who's got the vision and that everyone else just has to like fall in line mm-hmm. behind them and uh he's I guess Cameron in, in in his case is kind of fortunate that he can back it up by genuinely being a, a a ridiculously talented filmmaker who really does have an extraordinary vision for the film but i don't know man i i maybe it's been too long since i've worked on a film set but uh i i certainly wouldn't have have you know you'd be straight to that tea trolley yeah totally (laughs) i want my cheese sandwich in the documentary i think the the late great stan winston kind of sums it up the best doesn't he sort of says like a james cameron set is a hard set some people rise to it yeah mm-hmm. and some people don't um it's not to say it's right or wrong but um I, certainly i don't think he could get away with what he might have been doing in 1986 now and i don't think he would be that way anyway because he's at that point he was still trying to prove himself as well oh, i don't know i still i still hear stories of loads of overtime and different projects it happens mm. devlin you mentioned it and i just want to talk a little bit more about the production design because I think it's a really key factor to, to this film. I think, I think you said it earlier about that he takes things from the, the original, uh, and from Scott and just, just go, go with it as well. It's the dark aesthetic. It's, I love that the exterior, when, when they rock up to the planet, it's raining. I think that's a very cinematic thing that helps with the, the, uh, matte painting backdrop and the, everything from the rear projection, the Stan Winston creation, the production design of, uh, is it Lamont? Um, I think this is a really fine example of what, what you can achieve physically, uh, and and like perfect design that, that, that helped Cameron create his vision. And and coupled with that learning that, uh, they fired the the original DOP, didn't they? Because he just wasn't selling the set enough, really. And I, I completely get that. You know, was he the original, was he the DP? He from... was called Dick Bush and he was over lighting the set. Uh, Jim wanted it darker and he was lighting it too brightly. It was when they were entering the, the, the colony. And, uh, yeah, so he, and when you look at the out. set, you can't over light the, the, the dark, yeah. moody, uh, how it looks. I, I, yeah. I love the set design on this. Um, that, that wide shot to reveal when Ripley's in amongst the alien, uh, the queen's nest. I think is astonishing and um simple things like you know when the is it neon light on the tubes that are overheating that she goes by I just love all the little details in this film I think are really well done extending what you're saying about the look I think this isn't a Barbarella or a Flash Gordon style future you know they're going for something different and and Cameron's look uh, is like uh, almost an underwater fascination he has uh, it's a used future again again kind of extending the ridley scott setup of the first but it feels like you're you're in a, a deep ocean rather than in space you know it's very dark mm-hmm. and uh there's nothing glossy about it 
and he, he clearly has an affinity with with underwater things with the the obnoxious ghosts of the abyss oh, sorry jim a blue a, a blue, blue hue, hue. <laughs> <laughs> right then team time for our final thoughts and would you recommend aliens to our listeners i'll start with you matt because i think i know what you're gonna say yeah prepare for a loving uh it's an immersive, safe nightmare for me. It feels very comfortable, even though it was probably the scariest thing I'd ever seen up until The Exorcist in 1999. Uh, it feels like home to me in a weird way. It feels like I'm in my front room again on a Sunday morning. Um, you know, it's just sense memory. And, uh, you know, uh, although it's a sequel to one of the greatest horror sci-fis ever made, it works as a standalone film for me. It's completely self-contained. Uh, the, the filmmaking craft is second to none. Um, it probably has the greatest female action movie, uh, hero ever. Uh, Sigourney Weaver's finest performance, perhaps, uh, Oscar nominated, which was totally unheard of at the time for that kind of film. Uh, the buildups and payoffs are great. What may be like overkill or too much for someone like Siskel and Ebert? Uh, if you take a look at their review, it's quite infuriating. Um, <laughs> uh, th- th- this film was right in my wheelhouse and like they sound distressed when they're talking about aliens. Like they weren't quite ready for what Cameron delivered. It was too intense. And uh, yeah, I-, I had a whole thing slagging them off, but I'm not going to do it. I'll skip over it. And uh, uh, it's a love story, a paternal love story and a deeply moving one for me. It's also about loyalty and friendship and uh yeah i think it belongs in a museum it, it's a relic of cinema that we're never going to see again we're never going to have another aliens like this not the way it was produced here the queen was really there this isn't avatar this isn't a green screen you know uh, this is reality uh it was a large puppet and you know it's never going to happen again and there's a couple of things in there nitpicks as far as the effects um the rear and front projection stuff is a little kooky but um it's a fossil, it's a, a fossil in the most beautiful way, I think. It's given me countless hours of pleasure and escapism. And, uh, I think I'm going to return to it time and time again for the rest of my life. So yeah, thank you for discussing this one with me. It's been a pleasure. Uh, I'll pass over to, uh, Gally next. Yeah, I think I'll, uh, I'll pretty much say exactly the same thing, but, um, yeah. I, so when I was 10, a face hugger impregnated me with aliens. And it's not hatched yet, and it's because it never will. <laughs> there you go. It's great. It's still in there. Um, yeah, I, I absolutely adore this film. I uh, genuinely, and I don't say this very often, it's a masterpiece in my in my eyes. Um, and I didn't mention it during our entire discussion, but it's seen as a combat film. But you tell me how many scenes are actually action-filled gunplay? Barely any, and that is what. That is a true testament to this film. It, it keeps you on edge. It's tense. The pace of it is unrelenting, yet it's it's quiet when it needs to be, and it's slow when it needs to be. And I just adore everything about it. The dialogue is it's just on point and so quotable. The characters are just all all memorable. You know, even Wishbasky, who just gets blown up. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, for me, this is a, a tour de force. Um, I'm, I'm struggling. Is this better than Terminator 2? Oh, maybe when we get to Terminator 2 one day, I'll, 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 I'll sit on the fence for now, but, uh, it's certainly, uh, it's certainly, yeah, it's one of my favorite films ever made. And, uh, I, I'm like you, Matt. I'll watch this one pretty much every year. And if I can get Danielle to watch it again in the next couple of weeks, 
I'll try and we'll see. <laughs> but yeah, no, uh, that's, that's it for me. Uh, go out and see it, listeners. Absolutely. If you've not seen it for a long time, just, yeah, do it. What about you, Debs? Well, I guess I'm probably that exact person, which is somebody who was really familiar with the film, but hadn't actually sat down and watched it front to back for a really long time. Uh, and so on that front, I can very confidently say that, uh, you definitely should because it is, it is a remarkable film. It's, uh, I, I get what you're saying, Matt, about it being both kind of genuinely quite bracing and, and, and stressful and, and scary in, in the, in the good ways while also being like oddly comforting to watch. Like it's, uh, um, I guess that's what comes with being in the hands of somebody who really does know what they're doing. It's kind of remarkable that he was so early in his career. I know that James Cameron's name is, is so kind of, big but uh one thing about the making of documentary that made clear was that this was a guy who had literally only directed two films one of which was a roger corman quickie and the other was uh, uh a real punt you know they he wasn't given the green light to direct this until it became apparent that terminator was going to become something um so this is a, this is a, a young guy maybe that fed into how aggressively he kind of pursued every little aspect and every little detail that he was you know wanting to make sure that every little every little bolt was perfect um but uh as as much as it's a little infuriating in retrospect to see somebody kind of uh uh dispensing with or using other people's um efforts with with such kind of abandon it was clearly a a, a guy who was he had a fire under him and you can see it in this and that whether, uh, I think potentially I may agree with Matt that, that post Terminator 2, I'm not quite sure what happened to that fire. That it, it's, it's not that it never, it's not that it, it, it extinguished. It's just that it, it wasn't quite so focused, uh, or, or maybe it is just that this is more in our, our wheelhouse. It's, uh, it's kind of iconic, um, in the best sense. And yeah, it totally works as a standalone film. Um, for years, I didn't see the first Alien movie, whereas I would have watched this multiple times. Uh, and the, the depth that Sigourney Weaver is able to put into those early sequences, um, is, is enough for an audience to be able to understand exactly what's happening. And then when you see the first film, it kind of, it just illuminates things further, but it's all in there. It's all front to back as a, as a, it's a complete and self-contained film. You don't need to watch it as part of a run the series experiment. So that's great. Um, yeah. Uh, difficult to, to say anything other than, than yeah, just, just watch it. You can, I, unlike, uh, uh, on all the real girls, I don't have to specify a weird time of the week to watch it as well. Cause it's kind of always time for aliens. <laughs> you can watch it in the middle of the afternoon if you want. It'll still be great. Um, so yeah, it's uh, two thumbs up from me, Cisco and Ebert. Uh, how about you, Patrick? It's, it's hard being the last one to recap here because you've all said everything, really, uh, and I agree wholeheartedly. Um, I'm 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 really impressed with this film. Um, I when I watched the special edition the other day, I think I texted you something along the lines of "Fuck yeah, I fucking love this film," um, <laughs> something like that, uh, because I just couldn't. I can't get over how much I was just, in, I think I was on the edge of my seat, just rocking to it because it's quite a pulsating, like powerhouse of a film that gives, gets going and doesn't really give up. Um, 
even in the special edition with the things that we have problems with, I, I don't think it, it, they're, they're massive problems like timing wise or, or pace wise, but the theatrical cut just fucking hits home, doesn't it? It's, it's a, it's a proper, proper film. I, um, I more and more start missing all practical effects, um, these days. Uh, some things that I watch, I, I don't understand how CGI can be so shit in certain films and, I, and even though with puppetry, sometimes you, you know, you can see it's a puppet or something doesn't work or a movement doesn't work. I still miss the physicality. Matt, you're absolutely right that Weaver having to play off an actual queen in, in the room, I think adds so much more atmosphere and uh, danger in it to, to, you've got to be grounded. You've got to, you've got to see something physical. Um, and watching this film, I kind of marvel at it. I marvel at the the scope, the spectrum, the the production design, the way it looks, the the action. Um, yeah, Gally, there's not as much, but I'm tense throughout the whole thing. Um, favorite scenes, I didn't quite say it, but the face huggers chasing Newt and Ripley in the med lab, I I think it's one of the best scenes ever in, in any film. I can't tell you how how sweaty palmed I get during that sequence um i then again and then two three minutes later i shit myself when i see the aliens in the roof um <laughs> every time i have to change my pants in that scene it's mad and i i think weaver is one of the all-time great performances and characters in ripley here and i love it my dad uh is absolutely right the way he smiles and shouts random hudson lines at me every time he sees me uh bill paxton's great i i, I just Tonally, this film just works for me big time. Um, we didn't need to keep the sandwiches in our no, lunch no, we ate them. because this is the masterpiece, Gally. I, I completely agree. Oh, magic. Well, I'm glad you guys uh, enjoyed it. And Matt, thank you very much for picking it because I just didn't have the balls, basically. I, I had the same trepidation that you did, which is how do you tackle such a behemoth and, uh, and how, do you, how do you do it justice? So, but I think we, well, we had a go. How's about that? We had a go. No, thank you all. It was a pleasure. Yeah. Well done. As far as, uh, as far as, uh, where you can find aliens for your, uh, viewing, uh, listeners, uh, it is not currently streaming as a, as part of your subscriptions in the UK. However, you can. It is. On, it is. It's on. You have a site. Uh, ah, yeah, it's on now TV. Okay. It's on now TV. Very mm-hmm. good. Well, there you go. I uh, should have checked. Okay. That. I've got, uh, Netflix Korea as well. Oh, uh, not C A R E E R. K O R E A Korea, and it's also on Amazon Prime. And but I'd recommend you buy one of the great extras packed. Yes, yes. I was, I was about to really say worth that. It. Yeah, that, Watch um, that documentary. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, you can, and then that is available now on a Blu-ray 4K edition with all the with all the bells and whistles on it. Um, or you can purchase it on Amazon or any other streaming site in the UK. Obviously, if you're in Korea, hello. And, uh, and yeah, you can watch it tonight. What are you doing? Uh, so Patrick, it is your choice, uh, for a throwback. Um, so what are me, Devlin, and think about Matt. Why don't you think about Matt for a change? What are we going to watch next? If this is fifties, honestly, this is, you know what? I, I listeners, there was something off, um, off camera just then that makes me really want to punish Gally. <laughs> hard um but i am thinking about matt and i made a I, I did threaten them with something from 1967 but i'm gonna go in 1992 
Um, this is the first time I'm going to select something that I've never seen before. And it's something, again, influenced by my father, who, who always nags me to watch it. And we're going to watch Romper Stomper. Oh, God. We're going to get all wow. serious. Jesus. Hashtag. Okay. Yeah. We're going to watch Romper Stomper, please. Cool. And, yeah, let's see how that goes. Nice. I've never seen it, so that's a new one to me. I have also never seen it. Gally? Neither have I. Full house. We've never seen <laughs> it. I'm really looking forward to that now. Right, team. Shall we say our goodbyes? I hope you've got your uh, your lines available. Uh, like I said at the beginning of the episode, though, listeners, we will run through the entire series, but... Give us time because planning isn't our thing. All I'll say is, um, I can't wait to see what happens with uh, with our nucleus family of Hicks, Ripley, and New, and old Bishop as the dog. <laughs> can't wait. Let's see what happens. It's Galley in Glasgow. Uh, I guess you don't like the cornbread either. Is Devlin in London? Game over, man. Game over. I couldn't break my voice like Bill did. <laughs> Patrick from London. Cheers, guys. Drake, we are leaving. Adios, muchachos. It's Matt in South Korea. Oh, thanks a lot, guys. And you take care out of there. We'll catch you next time on the Rewind Movie Podcast. Yesterday I cried. Must have been relieved to see the softer side. I can understand how you'd be so confused. I don't envy you. I'm a little bit of everything. I'll roll into one. I'm a bitch. I'm a When I start to make you nervous And I'm going to extremes Tomorrow I will change And today won't mean a thing I'm a bitch, I'm a bitch